I mean, if this all started 70 years ago, why are we still talking about it? And it's fundamentally because the bedrock of Five Eyes are the common democratic values that are held by all five democracies that make up the group. So we shouldn't lose sight of where this started 70 years ago, and we shouldn't lose sight of what keeps us moving together in the same direction, values. It's a trust not just in the present generation of leaders of a country. It's a trust that goes down the generations. It's essentially a trust that your children and your children's children will continue to keep the secrets that are shared between these five countries and that the interests of those governments and those countries are going to remain aligned over essentially in perpetuity. The Five Eyes Partnership is best known as an intelligence sharing arrangement, but it also has a crucial military dimension, binding together five Western militaries and acting as a force enabler for coalition operations. The Five Eyes is a partnership of the US, the UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. The arrangement traces its origins back more than 80 years to the Second World War and the Atlantic Charter. Today, with the rise of China as a global power and an increasingly belligerent Russia flexing its muscles, the Five Eyes partnership is perhaps more relevant than ever. Welcome to Series 3 of Shepherd Studios' Five Eyes Connectivity Podcast, sponsored by our partner, Viasat. In the previous two series, we looked at connectivity issues facing the Five Eyes nations and heard how their militaries are harnessing new technologies. For this series, we'll look at the origins of the Five Eyes arrangement, consider what it means for military interoperability, and hear how the unique partnership can and should evolve for the future. So how important is the Five Eyes? No one knows this better than the very leaders of the member nations. Then let's start with two former Prime Ministers, Canada's Stephen Harper and Australia's John Howard. Both were speaking at a policy exchange event on the Five Eyes in 2018. When I say critically important, um, it obviously the membership of the Five Eyes represents for Canada some of our most important relationships in the world, not just with the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. Um, these are countries that sort of share, in my view, all of the critical elements of foreign policy, alignment on security matters, alignment on matters of uh, prosperity and, and economics, and alignment on matters of values and democracy. But then with the five eyes, there's a fourth element, not critical, but exists, which is this kind of broader historical, cultural overlay um, and you know, long history of cultural cooperation and obviously uh, 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 action in international affairs and global conflict through a long period of time. There is something about the intimacy of the relationship and it, it, is rest, it rests on the fact that when the chips are down, the five participants trust each other at a political and cultural level uh, beyond the level of trust that is found in relationships between other countries. In the years between uh, 2001 and uh, 2005, uh, when Australia was involved uh, uh, with the United States and the United Kingdom and others, but principally the United States and the United Kingdom, 
in military operations uh, in both Afghanistan and Iraq. The level of access that was available from MI6 uh, and uh, the CIA uh, and the confidentiality and the frankness, the candour of, of the briefings that I, I received from the heads of those two agencies uh, drove home to me on a personal level uh, just how much uh, uh, it was seen as a special arrangement and the value of that arrangement to countries like Australia and New Zealand uh, is very good. Douglas Lute is a former US ambassador to NATO and deputy national security advisor. Speaking at the policy exchange event, he also stresses the importance of Five Eyes intelligence. I wanted to share with you a little bit what it means when you arrive at your desk one morning and you are reading through the intelligence or you're being briefed on the intelligence and one or two bits of this intelligence are labeled at the top and the bottom five eyes. What that means is you stop whatever you're doing, you pause, you pay particular attention and you read this very carefully or you listen very carefully. That's because five eyes is the gold standard in intelligence. Now why is it that. It's because it doesn't come from a single national institutional source. It comes from five. And that intelligence collaboration across these five democracies uh, supercharges that intelligence because it's checked, it's double checked, and so forth. So Five Eyes is the gold standard, whether you're in the field as a serving United States uh, military officer, whether you're at the Pentagon and the senior staff level, whether you're in the White House Situation Room, or whether you're at NATO headquarters. When you see Five Eyes, you pay attention. This is John McLaughlin, a former acting director of the CIA, speaking at a recent Cypher Brief Summit on the Five Eyes. Uh, there are relations with intelligence services that are generally friendly, and there are many of those who are outside of the Five Eyes relationship. There are relations with those who are, I would call them neither friend nor foe, and you can imagine who they, who they might be. And then finally, there are relations we have with intelligence services in adversary countries who nonetheless share some range, narrow range of interests with us. And then there is our Five Eyes grouping, which frankly is in a category by itself, but I think at the core of that, is uh, trust, a trust that has built up over many years of, of doing together things that are difficult, sometimes dangerous, and vitally important to our mutual security. Where does this trust come from and why is it crucial for military interoperability? Here it's helpful to look at the Five Eyes in its historical context. Let's hear from John Parakini, Senior International Defence Researcher at the RAND Corporation, and Jim Rolfe, Senior Fellow at the Centre for Strategic Studies at Victoria University. The original arrangement was between the United States and the United Kingdom during the Second World War, and it was really mainly based on signals, sharing of signals intercepts during the Second World War. Uh, it evolved over time to include second parties, which involved Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Canada. And then there's periodic discussion about third parties uh, as well. But really the core are the five, uh, what, what one might call the Anglo-speaking countries that share common values, 
uh, have supported one another through a number of uh, international conflicts and have a similar approach to the business of national defense and intelligence with an emphasis not only on protecting their nations, but also on providing transparency where possible to feed the the demands and interests of the democracies that they are. Go, go back to 1946 when it was established. Peace had just broken out and, and the idea of sharing for the common good maybe had to be reinforced through formal bureaucratic agreement. You can't just do stuff because of the exigencies of, of a hot war. Uh, so bureaucratically, I think they would have believed, felt, that they needed some kind of structure laying out just what it is that we do and we don't do. Of course, while much of the original aims remain essential today, the Five Eyes has significantly evolved over the decades. Let's turn to Dr William Stoltz, Senior Advisor for Public Policy at the Australian National Security College. You know, it started out in the immediate uh, post-war era, building on the signals intelligence partnerships of the Second World War, um, and so the original kind of nucleus of the Five Eyes partnership was on signals intelligence, but it obviously very rapidly moved to encompass other forms of intelligence, so human intelligence and covert action. Um, and then over the years, that's rapidly, you know, um, included things like financial intelligence, law enforcement activities. And what's been interesting to observe in, I suppose, only just the last couple of years, really, is the extent to which Five Eyes is now being leveraged for many other activities outside of the traditional kind of law enforcement and intelligence partnerships. You know, we've seen Five Eyes joint ministerial statements on things like um, COVID economic recovery, on the issue of the Uyghurs uh, in China. And this is this is quite an interesting development, I suppose, in the sense that it's coming from at that ministerial political level, uh, there's there's this desire to be able to leverage this quite unique and tight partnership of like-minded countries in a, in a new way. Um, so that's been quite quite fascinating to observe. So, what does this evolving relationship mean for military interoperability? Craig Miller is president of Government Systems at Viasat. Here, he describes the core of the arrangement, a culture of sharing. We have a history of shared intelligence, and so we have, we have a very long history of being able to share data and package data and decide which parts we share and which parts we don't and still work together harmoniously. But beyond that, you know, the Five Eyes are really interesting in that there's a long history of shared language, culture, behavioral norms. And I think, to, you know, today that's still as true as ever. The, the Five Eye countries are more alike than almost any group of countries that you can pick, any other group of countries that you can pick. And I think that's going to help in cooperation because a lot of the problems of like sharing data, coming to agreements on standards, coming to agreements on what you share and what you don't share, um, th those are cultural aspects. You know, in business, we would call that culture. We have to have a culture of sharing. And I think there, there's a culture of sharing among the Five Eyes, and there's a long history of that. And I think that's going to be really important and give the Five Eye countries a leg up in collaborating with one another going forward. The capacity for Five Eyes nations to operate together has a range of practical military benefits. Well, it, it means a bunch of things and it enables a few things, but it also requires a lot of things too. And, and so the, the thing that it enables is 
um, the ability to act with a single imperative and for the allies to be force multipliers of one another. And that that's the core of why we want to do this. And if you think about, well, who cares? What does it matter? The reason it matters is because our peer adversaries are so sophisticated. We're not guaranteed to have dominance in all domains like we have in the past. So in the past, we've been fighting people that live in caves. And, you know, we, we have dominance over land, air, sea, cyber, space. And none of those are guaranteed. We're not guaranteed to have dominance over all of them. We're not guaranteed to have dominance over any one of them at any given time in any given region. And so we need the ability to flex and move and react. And that interoperability and being able to use each other's resources and leverage each other's resources and be a force multiplier for one another is the way that you're going to prevail when you're facing a peer adversary that can deny any given domain in, in certain regions at any given time. And so that, that's what it means is the ability to, to basically fight together as a one plus one equals three um, unit. And that, that's the goal. And that's the reason. Many challenges stand in the way of true military interoperability, even for Five Eyes nations. But there's a lot of a lot that's going to come with it to get there, too. We have to agree on what are our shared conops. What are the shared elements of the operational picture we we want to share with one another? Because, you know, we're allies, but not everybody shares every single thing we're doing. And so we have to decide what things are shared and what aren't shared and what we need from one another. We have to decide on essentially the medium of interoperability. There's a lot of decisions that go into allowing you to use one another's networks and allowing one terminal from one network to roam onto another network. And there's a lot of shared standards that are going to have to come into play here. We're going to have to agree on how we package data, how we move data, how how terminals work in the RF domain, in the data domain, in the cyber domain. And there's a lot of things that we'll have to agree on to be able to achieve this level of interoperability. And those are tough challenges. At a time of growing peer and near-peer threats, the nature of this challenge is also likely to change. Let's hear from William Stoltz again. This is where it's a test for the risk appetite of governments in the sense that for um, for Five Eyes countries, particularly like Australia, New Zealand and Canada, um, the operations in the Middle East were fairly, in, towards the end especially, fairly light touch they weren't they weren't thousands and thousands of troops on the ground um the the risk to casualties was kept as low as possible there was a political desire to make the necessary contribution to the coalition effort whilst minimizing the risk of um casualties and and any kind of political fallout of it going wrong uh the security environment today will probably mean that that risk appetite has to change in order to counter the the threats of foreign interference that are arising um, to deal with grey zone tactics being deployed on vulnerable countries in our region. Um, That might mean that Five Eyes countries have to get a little bit more comfortable with doing some of the more covert and clandestine activities that they did do during the Cold War, like like using um, human sources close to government officials in countries where we're otherwise meant to be on um, friendly terms and that sort of thing. However, there would be significant force multiplier advantages to such cooperation at the military level. This is the the thing to always remember is that China uh, does not have, and and nor does Russia really, have um, large uh, fulsome networks of friends. You know, they don't have um, super close allies. They they haven't... um, 
that they aren't battle-hardened in performing deeply integrated military operations with other countries. That is uh, something that, you know, the Five Eyes Nations, the NATO countries, and increasingly the Quad countries um, will have experience in. And so I think it's at several levels. It's at the operating level, just being able to um, fuse uh, multiple countries' militaries together obviously has an operational advantage in terms of bringing a greater um, scale of force to bear in a in a conflict situation. But kind of further upstream from that is, I suppose, in capability development, where countries are able to pool their resources, pool their knowledge uh, in a way to achieve capabilities that can't realistically be achieved by single countries anymore. Um, you know, you think about the uh, nuclear-propelled submarines that Australia is going to get or even things like the Joint Strike Fighter um, and some of the autonomous platforms that are being developed. These are systems that are kind of beyond the technical reach of any one country, perhaps even the United States, and can only really be achieved by pooling the innovation, um, the capital uh, and and the the resources of multiple countries at once. And again, that's not something um, that China presently has the ability to do because it hasn't built up those kind of incredibly trusted relationships with other countries. And I think that's that's the thing to underline here with Five Eyes is that while it isn't a grouping that's underscored by a treaty or these formal structures that we would typically recognise, it is underscored by a level of trust that is kind of unparalleled. These interoperability benefits are enhanced by the unique levels of transparency between the five nations. This is John Parakini again. Here's where I think the Five Eyes community provides an invaluable service. Among the Five Eyes, there is the Five Eyes Intelligence Oversight and Review Council, which involves the inspector generals, or in the case of uh, the United Kingdom, the investigatory powers uh, commissioner, and these these inspector generals or investigatory powers uh, offices of these five countries meet once a year and share what the challenges are in their countries to provide the type of oversight that democracies expect. And there is a real challenge that they face in providing that oversight and review as technology uh, rapidly uh, evolves in new ways that makes it hard to track, okay, so how are we really pursuing and obtaining the information that provides insight on adversaries and yet protecting the rights that are constitutionally protected in our five democracies? Because this is a, a level of transparency and intelligence that very few countries around the globe have as part of their intelligence activities. And here is one that it's not just a single country doing it. It's five countries sharing their experiences, good and bad, that I think inform all of us uh, in a way that uh, uh, helps strengthen Um, the overall approach to uh, the intelligence business of democracies. Of course, the five member nations have their own commitments and relationships, some of which feed into the Five Eyes. There have been suggestions that the arrangement could be expanded into a Five Eyes Plus construct, 
with countries such as Japan mentioned as potential participants. This is Paul Buchanan, Director of 36 Parallel Assessments, a geopolitical and strategic analysis consultancy. Well, the first thing we have to remember is that the the Five Eyes Agreement has a number of first-tier partners. That is, countries that, although they aren't members of Five Eyes, are considered allied enough, trustworthy enough uh, to share a lot of the Five Eyes secrets to include uh, collection. That is, some countries will provide information to the Five Eyes and, uh, and in return will receive it even though they're not partners. Among those countries are countries like Israel, uh, countries like Singapore, uh, countries like Japan. Uh, there's a number of them. And uh, uh, including them in the partnership might get unwieldy, but it really depends on f- what full inclusion brings to the table. Could such an expansion help the Five Eyes adapt to the rising powers and shifting realities of the modern world? And that's why Japan is mentioned, because there's uh, some belief that Japan offers a tactical window on real-time events in China that is hard to obtain otherwise. And that uh, to bringing the Japanese into the fold uh, will you know, provide even more economies of scale than uh, they have so far, because this is the clear thing about Five Eyes. You've got five partners all working with the same equipment, generally generally aligned in terms of their geostrategic interests. Very few other countries have those economies of scale, you know, the machine working, you know, collectively uh, on uh, mutually agreed upon targets. And of course, the main target now is China. So adding into that, um, it would have to be demonstrably proven that adding a full new partner would enhance capabilities in some way that they can't obtain now. But, uh, but the discussion is ongoing. Now, the downside is the Chinese in particular will not react well to Japanese inclusion. You know, they might react indifferently if it were Israel or Singapore. But the Japanese, given their history, that is going to cause, undoubtedly, a diplomatic route of some sort. So the the thought uh, or the process of inclusion will have to be filtered by diplomatic considerations of the highest order, because this will annoy the Chinese. Now, they know that they are the main target of Five Eyes, but to have a historical enemy brought into the fray Um, an enemy that the Five Eyes fought against in World War II will be considered an affront, a slap in the face of the Chinese leadership. And the question then is, what will they try to do about it? There could be broader challenges to expanding the grouping tied to its historical context. Here's Jim Rolfe again. In the intelligence world, which is what we're mostly talking about, I suspect, you know, there's the uh, signals intelligence comment, uh, which the NSA and GCHQ and uh, the, the, all the agencies in the five countries do. Japan has its own signals intelligence agencies. So that's um, equally, there'll be a uh, set of relationships between counterintelligence agencies, the FBI and the US, SIS and um, 
New Zealand and ASIS in Australia, for example, Japan will have a counterintelligence agency of some kind. So setting up those kinds of relationships wouldn't be so difficult, I don't think, in structural terms. But the important point here is the word relationships. The, the, the level of trust, especially in the military side, and I understand in the intelligence side, is such that they really are, you know, like a, a handshake clasped together. And, and that's based on um, 80 years of doing it. You, you put an outsider in who comes from a completely different psychological culture or understanding of how the world works. And I think that family relationship is lost and you head back to some kind of transactional system. At best, you would have something like CETA. You recall in the, up until the 1960s, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, uh, which included Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the US, France, the Philippines, Thailand, and maybe one or two others. There was a distinct two tiers, if not three tiers in there. France was never included in the central Australia, New Zealand, US, UK grouping. For that kind of read, they were outsiders. Um, and I, I suspect that if you tried to introduce Japan or any other country in, the same kind of thing could happen. The Five Eyes has served as a force enabler in the past, providing practical benefits through a relationship of mutual trust. This is Todd Harrison, Senior Fellow and Director of the Aerospace Security Project and Defence Budget Analysis at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. By, you know, bringing like-minded nations together uh, around shared objectives uh, and, and putting them together in these alliances uh, and networks like Five Eyes that are mutually beneficial, it also helps prevent any of those nations from going rogue. Right. Because now they're in a situation, if you think of it in game theory, in terms of a Nash equilibrium, uh, will any individual member uh, be better off by defecting, by moving out of this alliance or this network? Uh, and when you get enough enough like minded countries together that have a lot of shared interests, um, then it quickly becomes so advantageous to be part of the group uh, that no one would be better off by opting out of the group, right? And so that keeps people from going rogue. Uh, it keeps them together. And that also can actually prevent a potentially negative or destabilizing actions by any of the individual member nations. I mean, you know, one of the strengths is uh, it's very specific and targeted in a functional way. <laughs> right. So it makes it highly functional um, and therefore very useful, um, you know, in a targeted way. Um, I think, you know, one of the downsides is that does not always uh, transfer into broader, uh, you know, alignment among the nations. Right. Because that's where you need, you know, formal alliances and treaties. Um that are broader, have a, you know, a larger scope. Uh, and so, you know, the Five Eyes Agreement is not that. It doesn't, you know, bind us together, you know, in terms of our mutual security um, in a formal sense, but it is, it is very functional and useful in a more kind of day-to-day -day operating uh, environment.
What does this interoperability mean on a practical level for nation states? Paul Buchanan puts this in the context of the Five Eyes' smallest member, New Zealand. It was a, a, a Cold War creation. So you know, the targets, obviously, were the Soviet bloc. And there were advantages. Oftentimes I get asked, you know, why is New Zealand even in it? Well, if you think of the technologies of the 1950s, uh, what was not known then, at least publicly, was that putting collection stations in New Zealand allowed an over-the-horizon capability that the Soviets didn't have. I mean, it's been revealed that Five Eyes in the 60s and 70s was spying on the Russians. Uh, you may remember that it provided tactical information to the British in the Falklands War, so it spied on the Argentines. Uh, it spied on Japanese diplomatic uh, uh, messaging uh, in the 80s and 90s. So it goes after allies, and that's a key, key point. When Five Eyes says it's full take, full spectrum take, it doesn't just mean the communications. It takes from everybody. Uh, and then the strategic priorities of the partnership will determine what is analyzed. And so in the old days, New Zealand offered a geographic advantage, sophisticated technology that otherwise would be on U.S. or British soil, now shared with the Australians and the New Zealanders. The Australians focused on uh, the Indian Ocean and the subcontinent. New Zealand focused on, uh, you know, Polynesia and eastward towards Latin America. But with that over the horizon capability, well, now a lot of that has been obviated by modern te telecommunications technology. And so we're moving into cyber war. But let's remember that when it comes to signals and technical intelligence, the game is still the same. Back in the old days, I always think of World War II and I think of, oh, the Morse codes, you know, that you had code makers and code breakers. Now we have encryptors and decryptors. And so the game is the same. It's just the methodologies and the technologies have changed. And so geography is not as important to collection, much less, much less analysis, than it was 50 years ago, but it nevertheless remains important because of the economies of scale of having five partners work together in unison. The Falklands War provides an excellent example of such cooperation in practice. Well, we know that it was you know, very surreptitious, but the way the Americans were able to work it, there was, there was full intelligence cooperation uh, across the board. So Five Eyes basically shifted its gaze uh, towards monitoring Argentine military and diplomatic communications. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but that's just not publicly discussed. Uh, the interesting thing is that militarily, the Americans, you know, the Americans put special operators in advisory roles around the world. I mean, when you think of Green Berets, their main role is to assist local forces, uh, not only in kinetic operations, but in hearts and minds operations, you know, psychological operations, in other words. And what we've discovered is that there was some facilitation by U.S. military personnel, again, acting surreptitiously, for the insertion of British SAS into the theater via Chile. Uh, the Chileans and Argentines were in a diplomatic quarrel. Two dictatorships, 
arguing about the Beagle Channel Islands and where their territorial limits were. And the Chileans uh, basically violated the Rio Treaty, violated the OAS Charter, and gave the SAS staging areas in Chilean Tierra del Fuego in order for them to mount assaults and monitor the communications of Argentine, uh, of the Argentines in theater. So that particular conflict, because of the diplomatic necessities of the moment, was a non-kinetic war in the shadows as far as the United States and its partners were considered. The British were the belligerents, but behind them, you know, sort of tip of the iceberg stuff, were an alliance of intelligence operatives and special forces people who were trying to make the task easier because, let's face it, running that task force 6,000 miles down to the Falklands was a daunting task and they needed all the help they could get. Such cooperative efforts and their impact on military interoperability stem from a historic shared experience. This all centres on a word that comes up over and over again, trust. The Five Eyes is, it's almost like a brothership. You know, it's implicit that uh, certain standards of conduct and what have you will be maintained. And it's that implicit trust, even more than the explicit terms of agreement between the partners, that what makes this, this machine work. I mean, they, they fully understand that regardless of the political changes of the moment, I mean, let's think of it, New Zealand went non-nuclear in the 80s, and there was a bit of dip in relations, but not in intelligence sharing. The intelligence professionals kept on doing what they're doing. I mean, there was not a limitation. I've heard people say, oh, no, but the U.S. started choking off the flow of information to New Zealand. Uh, that is possible, but it certainly didn't affect the larger strategic picture because to do so would be to cut their nose to spite their face because New Zealand provides uh, information on areas of the world that the United States uh, couldn't reach at that time by itself. And so I think that we, what we have to understand is that these levels of trust and, and now these professional relationships developed over the course of 50 some odd years are about the strongest in terms of diplomatic relations or international relations that the world has seen. Today, the Five Eyes nations operate in a rapidly evolving technological environment. But how is emerging technology driving the evolution of the partnership? The technology revolution of the last 25 years has been the most significant change. And uh, rather than consecrating these changes and the implications of them in the agreement, it really has been a, an ongoing dialogue between the Five Eyes countries to get a trust level about what technologies we want to share with one another, what information we want to share with one another, what practices we think are the best use, what parts of the world we'd like one country to focus on more than another. So I, it, it really has evolved organically. It has moved back and forth depending upon political developments to a certain degree. 
So it's not really been defined rigidly in agreement documents. It's been more organic in its evolution. What technologies will support and enable future coalition operations? Viasat's Craig Miller outlines some key developments. One of the most important concepts is heterogeneous networking, or the thing that we call at Viasat hybrid networking. And that's the ability to bring different disparate networks together and let them operate as essentially a single network from the user's point of view. That might include something like bringing a commercial broadband system like the Viasat 3 satellite constellation together with other commercial broadbands from other providers, perhaps at other orbital regimes, and operating together with purpose-built military capabilities to include things like WGS, or in the UK, the Skynet system, or in Australia, the um, the system that will be built as part of the JB9102 product. These networks are all function as standalone networks and have fantastic capabilities themselves, but to have true interoperable um, performance and to achieve multi-domain operations uh, between coalition partners and to share data effectively, there has to be a mechanism where these networks form a, a network of networks. And from the user's point of view, I can talk to anyone that's on any one of those networks. I can use any one of those networks if they're available. And so being able to bring those together is one of the key next generation technologies. And that's something that Biosap's working on. It's something that many other companies are working on. It's something that multiple governments are, are sponsoring as well. And th this is sort of the core of it all is bringing these networks together. Um, and that flexible connectivity among multi-orbit, multi-transport, even terrestrial networks, um, that provides the framework that you can use to move data around. And that sharing of data, that's going to be, that, that's a reason we want interoperability, right? So that we can share data with one another. And those heterogeneous networks are going to be the core of that. In a changing world, is the Five Eyes still fit for purpose? Todd Harrison thinks it's important to consider expanding the club. I think that the number one thing that, you know, could help improve this intelligence sharing arrangement is to bring more eyes into the five eyes. Uh, and so, you know, the, the traditional members, uh, that still is a very strong alliance uh, network. But given the threats that we're facing, uh, particularly from China to a lesser extent, Russia, uh, there are a lot of other close allies uh, that we need to bring into this kind of arrangement as well. And it would be mutually beneficial, I think, for all of it. So I'm thinking in particular uh, of Japan, um, thinking of you know potentially South Korea uh, and some of our other uh, European allies like Germany. The, the other the other big change that that I would uh, look at, and this is something that each country needs to do internally. And we've heard some senior, you know, U.S. military officers talk about this for many years now is, you know, declassifying uh, some of, you know, our information, our intelligence, um, uh, well, or reducing the classification level is actually <laughs> more appropriate. Some things need, they need to stay classified, uh, but they could be at a lower level. Uh, and so, you know, there are things now that that the U.S. doesn't share with anyone that maybe we should take another look at that and actually allow it to be shared with five eyes. Right. So a reevaluation uh, of the classification levels. And then, quite frankly, there are some things that maybe we come together, you know, as a five eyes group and say, look, you know, we're all keeping this stuff secret, but there's no point. 
and keeping it sequel, but we would actually be better off uh, disclosing it and maybe agreeing to declassify some things, right? And so some of those discussions have to happen internally within each country, and some of them have to happen as a group. But bigger might not always mean better for the Five Eyes. Jim Rolfe outlines the complexity of relationships even within the intelligence sharing partnership. First of all, there's an underlying assumption that it needs to get bigger or better. Um, I'm not sure that it needs to get bigger. I'm certainly not sure that it needs to get more structured. And it might be that it needs to get smaller. There are four distinct groupings. There's the intelligence grouping, the original five eyes. Um, and they operate more or less under the radar. And they operate, they are operationally together. In other words, one, one country will collect on behalf of the group in a, in a specific target. So that's an operational arrangement. Uh, and I don't know that there's any point arguing that it should be done better or worse because unless you're part of it, you don't know. Um, then there's a set of military arrangements, which Australia and New Zealand have been part of since the mid-1960s, but which started in the 1940s with Canada, Britain and the US. And those also work very well. There's a huge range of working groups. Working groups uh, uh, can be stopped and started as needed. This is because it's an arrangement between agencies, not between countries. So there's, there's no need for formalities. Now, that leads to additional sets of groups. One is the expansion of the officials' meetings into the wider security, national security area. So there are meetings of border control officials, of passport control officials, of attorneys general, of immigration control officials. Those are much more recent, so I doubt that the relationships have been built up in the way that they have been with the military. And also, unlike the military, those groups of meetings don't put liaison officers in each other's countries, as far as I'm aware, whereas the military, all the militaries have standardization officers in each other's country. While there is room for expansion, it's vital to consider the structural impact. If we wanted to expand the five country sets of relationships, we could easily expand the officials' meetings. We could, for example, have meetings of national security advisors. We could, we could, for example, have meetings of health control, public health officials. We could have meetings of um, biosecurity officials. And I don't think any of those occur at the moment. So it's perfectly possible to expand those meetings, the range of meetings, but I don't think there need to be any more structure around that. Uh, that I would just leave it up to the technical people in each country to arrange. It takes us to the fourth group, which is a political grouping. Since about 2009, different ministers have started meeting, uh, different political appointees or electees have started meeting. And the moment you bring politicians into the process, you have a different dynamic. Politicians want publicity. Politicians want deliverables. Politicians want communiques. Uh, officials, by and large, don't want any of those things and, and, and haven't done them, haven't, haven't done them over the 40-plus years that have been going. Um, and politicians bring journalistic and thus public interest. And then you start getting discussion around the detail and politicians feel the need to take a position. 
Whereas the point of the five-country relationship is not to have a position, it's to work together in areas that you can. I used to be an official. If if I were with my official's hat on, I would say the best thing for five the five countries, I'm trying not to use the term five eyes, the best thing for the five-country arrangement would be to get ministers out of it, to get politicians out of it, and let it just be officials working so that they can operate effectively together. The Five Eyes is adapting to a changing world, one where peer adversaries are front and centre rather than the counterinsurgency operations of the recent past. In the next episode, we'll examine how the partnership enables multi-domain operations amongst coalition partners through networking and military connectivity. Industry will play a key role in helping the nations adapt to this future. Let's turn to Craig Miller for the final word in episode one. And even when you think about the end of the Cold War, we were out, we were able to outspend the Soviet Union and we were able to win the Cold War economically because we could just dominate with outspending them and forcing them to make some choices they couldn't make that eventually led to them collapsing. That's probably not the case for the next 30 years. We're facing peer adversaries that are economic equals or will be our economic equals over those timeframes. And they, they have advanced technologies. We're already seeing some evidence that they may be more advanced than us. Hypersonics are an example. And so, so we don't have a huge technological advantage. We don't necessarily have a huge economic advantage when it comes to defense spending. But if you think about um, the amount of spending and the amount of innovation that comes from industry, especially as you're starting to see some of the big technology companies enter the defense field and you're starting to see commercial companies like Viasat, that is a multi-billion dollar a year commercial internet provider and commercial broadband provider around the world adapt some of these technologies to defense. The budget of commercial that can be applied to government and defense technologies really sort of closes that spending gap and is a way to sort of re-engage that economic advantage. And so if you use commercial technologies as part of your portfolio of interoperable technologies and part of your networking technologies and even part of your space technologies, then that sort of brings back that level of economic superiority and that that's gonna have to happen. Next time on Five Eyes Connectivity, we hear how the Five Eyes Partnership is enabling the military concept of multi-domain operations. And we learn more about the vital role that secure communications and connectivity plays in the Five Eyes national security efforts. That's next time on Five Eyes Connectivity. The Five Eyes Connectivity podcast was created by Shepherd Studio in partnership with our sponsor Viasat. A big thanks for their support. Thanks to everyone who gave their time to support the project. The Five Eyes Connectivity podcast was produced by Tony Skinner and Jack Austin with research and interviews by Damian Kemp and scriptwriting by Jared Cowan. Until next time.